Bibles this afternoon. For a few moments, we want to go to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And today we want to look at rest in your relationship. Ephesians chapter 1. Thus far, as we've been studying this book, uh, this letter of Paul to the church at Ephesus, we've looked at recognizing your righteousness and relying on your resources. Today I want to begin looking at resting on, in our relationship. Uh, this uh, particular section, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, is really just one sentence. It's uh, what we'd call the longest sentence in the Bible. It goes from chapter, verse 1 to verse 14. Now you just need to ignore the punctuation at the end of chapters, or verse 6 and verse 12, because punctuations were not inspired, they were added later. Uh, But uh, we understand the construction of this particular sentence goes from verse 1 to 14. We're not going to look at that entire sentence today. But as we continue uh, in our study here in Ephesians, we come to a couple of verses that deal with an important doctrine that has been greatly distorted and believed by many so-called great Bible scholars, including great preachers, evangelists, students, and many more. And it has to do with what called, is called uh, reform theology or Calvinism. It's interesting that recently a, a member of our church uh, said someone asked them if Spooner Baptist Church believed in Calvinism. Well, this member's answer was he could not speak for everyone in the church, but Pastor Fleming is not a Calvinist. He does not believe in reform theology. Uh, that's a true statement. And so as we begin today, let me say there's no way I can adequately cover the subject, and I'm not going to try to cover the subject of, of, of Calvinism. Uh, John Calvin wrote uh, the institutes, uh, uh, his institutes, and his, I mean, they're multi-volumes that he wrote, and there have been multi-volumes written for and against his theology. So we're not going to try to, to deal with that. I want to deal with the passage before us. Uh, there's not, I can't say everything there needs to be said about this false teaching today. But before we continue, let me just give you three purposes for our church. Our church exists for the purpose, number one, of magnifying Jesus through faithful and careful preaching of God's word. Magnifying Jesus through faithful and careful preaching of God's word. That's what we try to do uh, every time we come to this pulpit to preach and teach God's word. We want to, want to be faithful to the word. want to be careful with it. Secondly, our church exists to move believers to, in Jesus to maturity in ministry. We don't want to just leave everybody in the nursery, so to speak. Okay? We want to move uh, Christians beyond being babes in Christ. We want to move them to be mature in Christ. That's what we have as a goal. It's called discipleship. Uh, 
And then thirdly, our church exists to make Jesus known to our neighbors and to the nations. We want to make Jesus known to those we go to school with, those we work with, those in our neighborhood. And then we want to make Jesus known around the world through our missionary representatives. And all three of these purposes, I believe, are important. And as we study this book, I think we find instruction on how to fulfill these purposes. But let me say that as we look at our text today, I'm particularly interested in that first purpose, and that is magnifying Jesus through faithful and careful preaching of God's Word. You know, even when we talk about Calvinism, we dare not just look at the terminology of the Calvinist. You know, uh, we could say, well, what does election mean? What does predestination mean? What does this term mean? What does that term mean? I don't want to just look at the terminology and deal with that. I want to deal with what does the Bible say? Because in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8, it tells us, Paul warns us, beware, lest any man, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. I believe John Calvin was a man who gave us a philosophy that became and has become the tradition of men. And it's not based upon the careful teaching of God's word. Uh, I'm not saying he wasn't a good student, he wasn't a scholar, but I I don't believe he, he got it right. And I don't say that because I think I got it right, you know. But I hope I understand God's word enough to know that what he was teaching is not what the Bible says. It's based on making the Bible say what a man wants it to say. So I don't want to just focus on terms that Calvinists has come up with to explain their teaching. I want to see what the Bible says. And I think that's always the best way, even in dealing with false teaching. Not what man says, but what God says. But let me just give you this afternoon three important aspects of our relationship. Remember verse 1 says Paul was writing to the saints and the faithful in Christ Jesus. The faithful in Christ Jesus. Those are uh, believers. Those are, uh, I trust, everyone here this afternoon is a believer. But so we want to first of all look at a relationship of truth. Verse 4 says, According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Now, if you remember what I've said thus far in our study is, what God says is truth, right? What God says is truth. But sometimes I think it helps us to relate it to some aspect of our lives in order to understand the truth as long as we're faithful to the Word of God. And I want to give you an illustration this afternoon, and, and I don't mean to, uh, I'm not trying to demean or any, uh, even the Calvinist or the a Bible believer uh, concerning this illustration, but I'm going to use uh, something that's familiar to most, most of us here this afternoon, and that's football. You say, football, what's that have to do with Ephesians? There were only football teams back then, were there? That surely not, couldn't be good. <laughs> Pastor, maybe you've gone off on some, no. 
I know there weren't any football teams, but this is what I've found to be one of the best explanations of this passage because this verse, in verse 4, as according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, is used by the Calvinist to say, see, God chose some people to be saved before the world was even uh, created, and he chose some people not to be saved. Don't believe it. Let me just give you this illustration. And by the way, I didn't think this up. I'm not that smart, okay? Hopefully smart enough to understand what the Bible says and not what man is trying to make it to say. But let's suppose there were two football coaches living here in Spooner. There's Coach Calvin and there's Coach Hobbs. I think Coach Hobbs kind of looks like me, but anyway... Well, it did one time, you know, back when I was a lot younger. But Coach Calvin is in a league. They're going to have a league, a football league here, and they're going to, uh, Coach Calvin is going to pre-select, and he's going to compel every player to be on, on his team, the players that are going to play for him. That's, uh, you know, if I was going to be Coach Calvin, and I'd say, you, 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 and you, you're going to be on my team, Okay. And I'm going to, before the season even starts, you guys are on my team. And then Coach Hobbs, he, uh, he's in this league, and he says, anybody wants to play can play. All right? I'm just going to throw it open. Anyone here wants to play, you can play if you choose. It's completely voluntary. So you have one coach says, you, 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 and you, and you are going to be on my team, and you don't have any choice about it. The other coach says, anybody can play, and I'm going to invite you all to play. But one thing they both have in common, I believe, is that prior to the teams even being formed, these coaches predetermined to conform their team members into being well-conditioned and trained football players. They said, you know, if we're going to have a team, we're going to have well-conditioned football players. We're going to have well-trained football players. Now, the Calvinist, I'm going back to not Coach Calvin, but Calvinist theology insists that Ephesians 1 teaches that God is like Coach Calvin, but all the text actually states is that is what the coach has predetermined for his team to become. In other words, that's what God has predetermined. That's what God has predestined, what his team is going to become. It says nothing about his predetermining who would or would not be on the team. Because it says, according as he hath chosen us in him. You cannot minimize those two words. In him. The first chapter of Ephesians is, uh, can be a hotly contested passage regarding the doctrine of salvation. But the first verse reveals that Paul's audience are saints and the faithful in Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ. In fact, this theme of in Christ is introduced here in these opening sentences. sentences and it continues throughout the, the entire section of the text. He repeats it. In this phrase and various other phrases, at least 13 times. You've got your Bibles there, uh, and I hope, to Ephesians chapter 1. 
Let's look at Ephesians chapter 1. Let's look at this longest sentence in the Bible uh, and, and read it through. We're not going to explain it all. We're not going to try to uh, teach it all today. But I want to just show you something in these first 14 verses. And you, if you mark in your Bible, this is a good time to mark in your Bible. Because every time you come across a phrase, in Christ, or uh, some form of that, and I've kind of marked them as we go through. You can follow me or you can follow in your Bible so you can, you can mark them. But look at verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Verse 4, According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Technically, you could probably say in love would be uh, something because God is love, right? Uh, and Jesus Christ is the epitome of uh, that could be one of uh, the phrases there you could use. Verse um, uh, verse five, having predestinated us to, to the adoption of by of children by Jesus Christ, I think that qualifies to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us adopted. In the beloved. Who's the beloved? That's Jesus. Verse 7. In whom we have redemption. Through his blood. The forgiveness of sins. According to the riches of his grace. Wherein he hath abounded toward us. In all wisdom and prudence. Verse 9. Having known unto us the mystery of his will. According to his good pleasure. Which he hath, him, he hath purposed in himself. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times. He might gather together in one things, all things in Christ, which uh, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. Verse 11, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. That we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. Verse 13, in whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. I hope you can see already in just these 14 verses how many times there is a reference to in Christ. Now, there's a question we want to pose for some uh, consideration. Let's drop any preconceived ideas we have about this text and attempt to, uh, to answer a question or two that, as honestly as we can. How does one come to be in him? How does one come to be in him? Does this passage state that he chose us individually to be effectually placed in him? Or does it simply state he hath chosen in him? Does it teach that Christ redeems us individually so that we might be irresistibly put into him? Or does it 
teach only in whom we have redemption. Does it say that God has chosen individuals to be in him or does it say he hath chosen us in him? So has God chosen individuals to be placed in him or has God chosen individuals who are in him? If we put it another way, has God determined the individuals to be in a group? Or has God chosen a group of individuals for a predetermined end? You know, so much focus, so much attention is put on the first 12 verses that they fail to see the last two verses where Paul gives the answer to this vital question. How does one come to be in him? Look at verse 13 and 14. Look at verse 13 and 14. It says, in whom ye also trusted, what's the next word? After, after that what? After that ye heard the word of truth. Now was that before the foundation of the world? No. In whom ye also trusted after ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation. So the first question is, when were they included in Christ? That means God chose way back in eternity time. Who No, he chose you after you heard the word of truth. Was it before the foundation of the earth? No. What answer does the text give? You see, you have to see what the Bible says, not what we think it says. It says, In whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Now, if you go on, you continue to read there, you see it says, in whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of his glory. Second question is, when were they sealed? The word sealed means to be stamped or marked. When were they sealed in him? Was it before the world began? And without any regard to their response to the gospel? What does the text say? After, after, after that ye believed, ye were sealed in him. You see, the text seems to clearly indicate that God has predetermined that the saints and the faithful in Jesus Christ, according to verse 1, will become holy and without blame, Now, what do we call that? Holy and without blame. We call that sanctification. That's verse 4. And they will be adopted. That's glorification in verse 5. Romans 8.23 clearly indicates that Paul sees adoption as a future hope for all who come to faith. So how do we know that we believers in Christ will be sanctified and glorified? Because God has sealed us in him. And given us his spirit as a guarantee of what he has purposed for all who believe. So this passage is not about what God predetermined which individuals will be in Christ. It's about God predetermining what will become of those who are in him through belief in his truth. And we could say the divine coach has invited all to come And to join his team. Now you can find numerous passages. We won't look at all the passages of scripture where where Christ does that. Where he invites 
all to come to him. And all who come to him will be trained. In other words, sanctified, conformed into his image. Romans 8.29 is a good passage on that. And guaranteed a spot. Because that is what your coach has predetermined for all those who are on his team. You see, the truth is what God says about you. Not what you think he says. He wants you to rest in that relationship. Now, when I say he wants you to rest, that means don't go to sleep on me, okay? Uh, Don't be a lazy, good-for-nothing Christian. But be at rest, at peace, secure about your relationship in him. Now, thus far, we have said you don't want to be proud. But you don't want to say, oh, I'm just good for nothing. God wants us to see who we are and what we are in Christ. Remember, real humility is accepting what God says about you as a Christian. And we talked about that in our very first study in recognizing our righteousness. Not of any good that we have done, but by his grace. And when we talked about, uh, then we talked about relying upon our resources. And if you weren't here last Sunday, I'm sorry you missed that. You can still listen to it on our website. But God has already blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so the truth of God's word is not those Calvinistic man-made ideas that confuse people and cause unrest. But here we have a truth, we have the truth, that we can rest and be secure in and bring glory to our Savior Jesus Christ. Why? Because we are in him. We are in him. So that's a relationship of truth. Secondly, it's a relationship of acceptance. (coughs) Look at verse 6. To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Your relationship is one of acceptance. Not that you accepted God but that he has made you accepted in the beloved. Now, who is the beloved? I already asked that question once. I gave you the answer. It's Jesus Christ. (coughs) And you are in Christ. And so what is true about Jesus is true about you. When the Lord Jesus was being baptized, God the Father said of God the Son... This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, if you are in him, you are accepted in him. In the beloved, you are accepted in the Lord Jesus. Now, the problem with so many is the reason we are not what we ought to be as Christians is we don't see ourselves as God sees us. Again, it's false humility to say, Oh, I'm no good. I can't do anything right. And we have a feeling of rejection. Now, why do we have a feeling of rejection? It's because it's our nature. Remember, Adam sinned, and Adam's sin caused rejection. What happened to Adam and Eve after they sinned? They were put out of the Garden of Eden, they were rejected. Remember Cain and Abel, who perhaps came to their daddy one day and said, Daddy, you ought to see this beautiful place we've seen. We've climbed up and we've looked over the wall. It's the most beautiful garden you'd ever see. 
Dad, do you suppose we could live in a place like that? And someone put it this way, that Adam said, We did once, boys, before your mother ate us out of house and home. But Adam was rejected. And Eve was rejected. And there is by nature the same rejection in us. It's called the old Adamic nature. We came into this world with an inborn feeling of rejection and we spend most of our time looking for acceptance. We live by what other people think. Let me ask you a question. You say you're going to ask me trick questions like you did last Sunday? Well, why do you think kids go to rock concerts and listen to rock music on their iPods or the MP3 players? We used to say cassettes and 8-tracks, but by the way. But uh, they don't have those anymore. Why do you suppose they listen to that music? Well, you say, well, they like it. Nobody likes that music. Nobody can like that. I was in one of our stores here uh, recently looking for something. As I went in, the rock music was literally blasting away. This wasn't a very big store, but it was just blasting away. And as I walked down the aisle, I came in contact with the source. It was there up on a shelf, and it was just, it was turned up as far as it could be turned up, I think. I think they were trying to sell it. Well, I wasn't buying it. It was ear-splitting. Now, how could anyone like that? I made a brief look for the item I was looking for, and I got myself out of there. I said, I told the uh, I said there's, there was a guy standing by the counter, just leaning up against the counter, doing one of these. You know. I think he was a worker there. He was behind the counter, but he's doing this. Looking at his cell phone. I told him the music's too loud, and I'm not going to buy anything at this store. He looked up at me, kind of smirked and mumbled something, and then he went back to look at his phone. He didn't care. I'm pretty sure that I'm going to be pretty desperate before I go in that store again, by the way. Well, young people, and even some older people, say, may say, oh, I like that music. But you know why? They've become addicted to it. It's not normal to like it. It's not natural to like it. It's like drinking liquor or smoking cigarettes. You have to learn to like it. I tried both. I could not learn to like it. Didn't take me long to say, no way. I'm not, besides that, that's not very, very good testimony. And as a Christian, I said, I shouldn't be doing that anyway. But I couldn't like it. You know, when people start smoking, they get sick to their stomach. Maybe uh, if you were a smoker one time, you, you remember that. Or if people start drinking about the first drink, they get sick to their stomach. You know why? It's natural. It's not natural to like it. You have to learn to like it. And then you become addicted to it. One of the, re- one of the reasons young people go to rock concerts and they smoke and they drink alcohol is to feel accepted. It doesn't matter whether they're fat, skinny, got pimples, or anything else. They want to be accepted. They do these things because it has a sense of belonging. They want to be part of something, and they have not found it in the Lord. 
Some have the idea that mom and dad don't love them. They feel rejected. Uh, The same is true with the way people dress sometimes, you know. They dress to be accepted. If you're a young person, you don't have a pair of torn jeans, you're not going to be accepted. They used to go to great lengths to make their jeans faded and torn, you know that? Now you don't have to go to great lengths, you can just buy them. You can buy them off the shelf just like that. I saw uh, a pair of, of jeans advertised, 85 bucks, ripped all up. Why do they wear that stuff? They want to be accepted. Now, what happens is that many Christians still have a need for acceptance and is sort of a leftover from when, before they got saved. They fail to understand who they are in Christ and they are, that they are accepted in the Beloved. And so many Christians are trying to be accepted when they're already accepted. Uh, they work hard to make God love them. They think, you know, if I would just give more money, if I would just be in church more, if I would just pray harder, if I would just study and memorize more verses, maybe, just maybe, God would love me and would accept me. By the way, there's nothing wrong with giving, attending church, studying, praying, memorizing scripture. But those things do not make you accepted in the, in the Lord. Listen, those things please God, as we talked about this morning, pleasing God. But you've already been accepted. So you don't have to work at it. It's His grace that has made you accepted. Look again at verse 6. To the praise of the glory of His grace wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. So your relationship is one of acceptance. And then thirdly, a relationship of change. I want you to listen to this. Get it? God does not change you in order that he may love you. God loves you in order that he may change you. Let me say it again. God does not change you in order that he may love you. God loves you in order that he may change you. As a matter of fact, he loved you before you were saved. Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, if God can love a dirty, no good, low down, rotten sinner, don't you think he loves his own sons and daughters? Those who are a part of his family, those who are in his forever faith of uh, 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 family of faith, you are accepted in the beloved. Give me an illustration from the Bible. I don't. This is uh, not football. Okay, this is one from the Bible. All right. Remember David and Jonathan. Jonathan and David were good friends. They had good fellowship with one another. They would fight one another's battles. They would share one another's possessions. They had a blood covenant, not only between David and Jonathan, but it extended to the children. Jonathan then died. And before he died, he had had a son by the name of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth is going to be the heir to the throne. But Saul and Jonathan both die, so... David is anointed as a king. Well, Mephibosheth, if you remember, he was lame in his legs from birth. And someone took him to Lodabar. And he grew up fearing and hating David. 
And the reason he feared and hated David was because he did not understand David. He did not know that David loved him. He did not know that David had made a covenant with his father. His rebellion was because he believed a lie. He didn't know the truth. And so one day, David found Mephibosheth, and he came before David, and he fell on his face, and he thought that David was going to kill him on the spot. But David said, I don't want to kill you. I want to bless you. I want to treat you as one of my sons. I want to restore your inheritance. I want you to sit at the table with me. I want to to love you. I want to honor you. I want to bless you. And David accepted Mephibosheth because of Jonathan. Now, in light of our text today, doesn't that sound familiar? Doesn't that kind of sound like what we're talking about here? I believe it's a great commentary on this passage and. Why am I accepted? It's because I'm such a great guy. I'm in great shape. You know, I am in great shape. I mean, just look at me. That's a great shape. No, it's not because I'm such a great guy. It's not, it's not my looks. It's not my, my clothes. It's not anything I am. It's because it's not anything I've done. The Bible says later in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as what? God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Just as Mephibosheth was accepted in Jonathan, I am accepted in Jesus. You see, God loves me now. Even though I'm imperfect, even though in my own stature there are faults and failures, I am the righteousness of God in Christ. That righteousness has been imputed to me. I need to recognize my righteousness. I need to rely on my resources. And I need to receive or rest in the relationship which I have, and that is that I'm accepted in the Beloved. Listen to this. Holiness is not the way to Christ. Christ is is the way to holiness. Holiness is not the way to Christ. Christ is the way to holiness. Recently I read this statement. It said this, If we would be filled with the Holy Spirit, we must live righteous and godly lives. Actually, I think the person who wrote that got it backwards. And you always have to be careful about reading commentaries and books by men, even study Bibles sometimes. You have to prove what is acceptable unto the Lord That's another passage here in Ephesians. But I believe that statement should have read, if you would live a righteous and godly life, you must be filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, if I cling to my sins, I won't be filled with the Holy Spirit. The righteous and holy life will result because I am being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, the key to all of this, and this is the the main point of this whole message this afternoon, the key phrase in the book of Ephesians is, in Christ. I trust you'll focus on that instead of some teaching that God chooses some to go to heaven and some not to go to heaven. Let me give you one more illustration, okay? I think this is one many of you can relate with. I know it's the wrong time of the year, but spring and summer are coming. Okay? Believe me. I'm not not preaching. I'm telling you the truth. Okay? 
But if I had a canoe, and I put you in the canoe, you would be in the canoe, right? Well, then if I put the canoe in the Namakagan River, where would you be? You'd be in the Namakagan River, right? I mean, I got you in the canoe, and you're in the canoe, and I put the canoe in the river. Where are you? You're in a canoe in the river. Now, I know that's a very simple illustration, but I want you to understand, where are you right now? You are in Christ if you're saved. And where is Christ? He's in the heavenlies. So where are you? You're in Christ. You're seated in the heavenlies right now. What is true about Christ is true about you. And you see he's already enthroned. He's already seated in the heavenlies. And all things are beneath his feet. And when you understand who you are in Christ, you understand your righteousness, you understand your resources, you understand your relationship, and it won't be pride, it'll be genuine humility. Humility is accepting what God says. Then ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you.